starts tomorrow, so pray for my students. Uh, Monday night, first year Greek, get to share another group of people. It's fun. Well, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 7, uh, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at uh, the first 23 verses of the chapter. And I... Uh, titled the, the message, Clean Hands or a Pure Heart? It asks the question, Clean Hands or a Pure Heart? And I want to, uh, to start this chapter by uh, giving you a little bit of background on, on what's happening. And there are several things we're going to need to deal with as we go through some of the things are set in an ancient setting, so we may not understand what washing the hands means and what korban means, but I hope to do a good job of explaining that to you so you understand why, why the discussion goes the way it is. But ultimately, I think the problem in this passage is that the Pharisees think that clean, just cleaning their hands means that they have a pure heart. They've read the first part of Psalm 23:3. He who has clean hands, and they forgot about the pure heart part of it. So uh, that's part of the question I'm trying to answer today, and this is why I brought up Jeremiah 17:9. The heart is the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. How do you reconcile those two? How is it possible to have clean hands and a pure heart? I hope to answer that question. But as we look at this passage, what you're going to see is in uh, verses 3 and 4 is an explanation of the hand-washing practice among the Pharisees. And that surely is for a Roman audience. But then when we look to, say, verse 19, where it says that Jesus pronounced all foods clean. Now, how does food relate to washing hands? We'll get there. But Jesus pronounced all foods clean. That's for the Jewish part of the audience. Now, this is interesting. Sometimes those kind of historical pieces to this don't interest people that much. But, but I tell you what, this is really interesting. Because we've got a book, the book of Mark, that's being written early. That is, very close to when the events of Jesus' crucifixion took place within 25 years at the latest. And so what this is telling me is that we still are dealing with a mixed group of people within the church. Now that tells you a lot about when Mark was written. Mark was written around the same time the book of Romans was written. Have you read Paul's letter to the Romans lately? It's 16 chapters long, as long as Mark was. Well, Mark's a little shorter. Uh, in some ways, there's a mixed group of people, and the food laws are still a live issue. I want you to, to, to think on that. I'm not going to touch on it that much this morning, as I am the next time we get to study Mark together, because, because that one verse in verse 19 is a hint to what's going to happen in the next, in the next passage, and it is um, striking. In, in what Mark has affirmed. But we'll leave, we'll leave kosher for next time we, uh, next time I get to talk to you about the book of Mark. But so, there's several audiences in Rome and in other places. Rome would be the readers, readers of the Gospel of Mark. There's Gentiles, non-Jews, and then there's Jews. And then we have the Pharisees and we have the disciples. And the way Jesus handles each group of people is really very interesting. I just want you to think about that as we, as we go through because we're, we're, uh, we're going to take parts of the chapter kind of out of order just so you can get the sequence of the argument. Now, this, this chapter is about a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And you say, well, we're reading the Gospels. What else is new? You know, these happen all the time. As a matter of fact, one of my one of my now colleagues and my uh, fellow students in the doctoral program 
wrote his uh, his doctoral dissertation on Sabbath controversy in the Gospel of Mark. So, you know, you can write a dissertation on the confrontation story in the Gospel of Mark. There's this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. They, they have their traditional hang-ups about washing hands, about the nature of defilement. And Jesus is going to respond by showing, not just claiming, it's not just liar, liar, pants on fire. It's Jesus is actually going to show how they are hypocrites in the way they're approaching their criticism of his disciples and naturally of him. And behind this is going to be this theme we've seen before about Jesus' authority. Remember what he says at the end of the Sabbath controversy in chapter 2? He says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are criticizing his disciples for plucking grain on the Sabbath and, and rubbing it in their hands. You know, that's threshing, by the way, and that's prohibited. That's work on the Sabbath, you see. Well, I see you're not buying that, but, uh, but Jesus has the authority to make pronouncements like that, and we're going to see him make this pronouncement in verse 19. And ultimately, what we're going to find is that the heart of the matter is the heart. Or the heart is the heart of the matter? Or how should we say that? The heart is the heart of the matter, or the heart of the matter is the heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it almost never, I, I should say never, but I'll say almost never, means the organ that pumps that gallon or so of, of, uh, uh, of red stuff through your veins. Okay? Never that. We get very close to it in this passage. It's always, when the Bible talks about the heart, we're always talking about the inner person, the center of one's personality, intellect, will, and uh, thinking. So the heart is the heart of the matter. And so let's turn once again to the, what I kind of, I, I regard this as kind of a theological uh, illustration of the point that's being made in the passage. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who's qualified for worship? And who may stand in his holy place? Who gets to go to the temple? Who gets to go to the tabernacle? Who, who uh, is allowed to appear there? And the psalmist an answers the question, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now, clean hands means your hands are not defiled by something you've done, right? It's what the hands do. And a pure heart, meaning uh, un, undiluted uh, motivation, un, unblemished motivation, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And yet we read this statement in the prophets. In Jeremiah, he says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Incidentally, this is why I think when you tell people how to respond to the gospel, you should not tell them, invite Jesus into your heart. Because of this, because of this verse, Jesus doesn't want to come there. Okay, if you have to, if you have to get an invitation in there somewhere, or if you have to use a door, like, you know, if you heard people, they'll present the gospel and they'll say, Jesus is standing at the door and knocks, it's Revelation 3.20. You go, well, put that in context, that's, that's for believers. But Jesus is standing at the door and knocking to, let, uh, to ask believers to get back in fellowship with him, right? Well, if you have to use a door, just go to John 10 and say, you know, I'm the, I am the door, the sheep, the sheep come in through me. So no one comes to the Father except by me, John 14. You've got to use that when you present the gospel. Do that and say, put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid your sin for your sin on the cross. And all you need to do to be saved, to have a right relationship with God, is to put your trust in Him that what He did is sufficient between you and God for you to have a relationship with Him. That is the moment when you receive eternal life and forgiveness of your sins. Okay, so don't don't tell people, invite Jesus into your heart. It's not there. It's not what the scripture is saying. Anyway, I digress. 
Now, if you don't catch anything else, I'm going to put this up again later, but, you know, I figure might as well get the truth kind of front-loaded here so that if you fall asleep, uh, at least you've got the, the main point I'm trying to make. My point is that a pure heart leads to clean hands. If you have a pure heart, now, I haven't explained how to get a pure, pure heart yet. I really have already. But uh, we'll see how this works uh, in the passage. But here's my, my statement of how the passage works. Align yourself with God's will by recognizing His standard for the evaluation of life. We're going to see this as we go through the, the passage here. Align yourself with God's will by recognizing His standard for the evaluation of life. You know, when I first wrote that statement, I, thought I, I, put, I wrote it this way. For the evaluation of your spiritual life. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. It's not just what's going on in here. It's not just what's going on in your cranium or in your chest. If you want to say your heart, okay? you, can, you can give me that, right? Um, it's not just what's going on inside. It's what comes out of you that's the important thing. It's how you actually act in life that is the key. And that's the point that Jesus is going to make as we get into this passage. So the main trouble we've got here in this passage is the trouble of hypocrisy. Okay? In verse 6, Jesus says, you hypocrites. Now, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I happen to listen to uh, Andy Stanley, uh, his Your Move podcast on the way over here from Florida. And he was teaching on this passage and he invited his audience. Okay, everyone, I know you've been kind of, I know you've been kind of saving this up for a long time, but I want you to turn to your neighbors and say, "You hypocrites!" Okay. So I want, I'm not going to do that, but you know how worship leaders stand up, say, "Tell the guy next to them you, that you love them," you know, and so on. Well, this time it's "You hypocrites," because actually all of us are. So hypocrisy isn't just for hypocrites anymore. It's Hey, we've all got problems. Okay. So, but I'm, I want to look at, in this passage, the symptoms of hypocrisy, the root of hypocrisy, and its treatment. Okay. Now, I, when I first wrote those three statements, those three basic terms, I, I put down cure. And then I thought, no, cure doesn't work. Because there is no cure. You can, you can manage the symptoms. Uh, but you can't ever get rid of it, all right? It's kind of like toenail fungus. Uh, it sticks around, okay? It keeps coming back, okay? Medical professionals can, can testify. Uh, now, now, before we get into the symptoms of hypocrisy, just let, let me clear up one thing. You know, we're all hypocrites, you know? You, you know people who have left the church because it's full of hypocrites, Okay? And, and you say, well, yeah, that's why we go to church, to, to deal with our hypocrisy, right? So, you know, so if you've got a friend or maybe if somebody dragged you here today and you say, I, I stopped going to church because of the hip, hypocrites there, um, sorry, you can't, you can't escape. We're all here. Um, <laughs> hey, what's one more? Okay. So we, we all have to understand that we, we're all hypocrites in, in one way or another. But let me... Let me make a distinction between just being inconsistent and being a hypocrite. Okay, there's there's a difference. There's there's a difference between like having your own standard and not being able to make it, falling short of that standard. That's just being inconsistent. That's not necessarily hypocrisy. What the hypocrite does is he takes it a step further and he says, "Oh, but I really did hit that standard. I really do make my standard all the time, and I'm going to cover everything up so that you can't figure that out." Of course, you will eventually. If you meet, if you know somebody well enough, you're going to find where they're inconsistent, and that's the problem. The problem is being deliberately inconsistent, uh, and especially when it comes to teaching other people to follow your lead. That's the problem of hypocrisy. A bit. So let's talk about the symptoms of hypocrisy, the root of hypocrisy, and its treatment. Of course, it's always easy to see hypocrisy in others. Okay. But it's hard to see it in ourselves. Physician, heal thyself. Right? You, you, uh, you can't.
can't uh, often see it. But what we're going to discover as well is that when it comes to clean hands and a pure heart, as the psalmist said, hypocrisy is one of the major barriers to actually getting clean. So let's see what the symptoms of hypocrisy are from the, uh, from the Pharisees. The symptoms of hypocrisy are making rules to both deceive and dominate. When somebody makes rules to deceive you as to where they are spiritually or to dominate you spiritually, just like the Pharisees do, that's where our problem lies. So let's look at verses 1 through 5, which is really kind of the setup to the passage. And then verses 11 through 13, as Jesus will respond uh, to it. Verse 1, Mark 7. And the Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered together around him when they had come from Jerusalem. And they had seen that some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews did not eat unless they very carefully washed their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come in from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they cleansed, their, unless they cleansed themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and uh, pitchers and copper pots and dining couches. Wow, that's an impressive list. You think about all these traditions. What's the best way to cleanse a dining couch? How much, I, I'm not kidding, but there, there are entire tracts of the, the rabbinic materials which will explain how much water you're supposed to use. If, Two people are sharing the water, how much water you're supposed to use, and so on. Um, it's, they've got this down to a science. Okay. Now, let me just point something out to you here. We're not going to spend long on it, but did you notice that in, in verse uh, 2 he said, the Pharisees and all the Jews? Uh, the term Jews in this context is not talking about the nation Israel, racially Jews. They're, he's talking about the, the religious elite in Jerusalem, the Jews. It's using the term almost exactly the same way the Gospel of John uses this term. That's interesting. You could write a dissertation on that. I don't know if, I don't know if you could prove anything, but anyway. Uh, so the Jews uh, is, in this context, the religious people. So we're not talking about all Jews everywhere do this practice. It's the Pharisees and the religious elite who want you to be like them who carry on this practice. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, verse 5, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat their bread with impure hands? Now, we just want to know. But do you see the, do you see the indictment in the question? It's like they aren't going to make a, an accusation directly like, you aren't walking according to the, the, the rules of the elders. Now defend yourself. They've, they've already convicted you. They say, why are you doing that? They've already assumed that everyone should do what we do. Now, let, let me just pause for a moment and say, the past is a foreign country, and they do things differently there. So when, when we read about unwashed hands, we're not talking about sanitation. Okay, so so, okay, so please, if you don't hear anything else, wash your hands. <laughs> you need to wash your hands. Okay, talk to any medical professional. You know, just read up on the internet. How much bacteria is on your hands? No one's going. Not my hands. No, there's plenty. There's plenty on there. Wash your hands. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about. Okay, so so kids, you can't say, hey, the Pharisees. We're upset about washing your hands before dinner. I shouldn't have to because Jesus wasn't. No, that doesn't fly, okay? Wash your hands. All right. The reason you wash your hands, though, according to uh, Pharisaic tradition, is to keep yourself from being defiled. Now, i got to go back a little ways here. i got to go back into the, into the Old Testament. To Leviticus 10.10. 10. Real quick explanation here. 
Leviticus 10.10 says that the priests are to make a distinction between the holy and the profane. Profane is common. And between the unclean and the clean. Okay? Now, this is in the context of worship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring that up again. But so what, the, what they're supposed to do is make a distinction between the holy and the common. The holy and the profane. profane here doesn't mean bad words. It means common, like what's used in everyday use. You don't use mom's great crystal to drink your Gatorade, okay? That's the idea of common versus holy, right? Okay, but when it comes to worship, Yahweh does not want people just kind of doing it humdrum every day. So he put a, uh, he put a series of regulations in so that people wouldn't just take him for granted. They did anyway, but still... The priests were supposed to distinguish between what could be used in the act of worship and what could be used in everyday stuff. With me here so far? That's the distinction between holy and common. Now, to go from holy to common, to, to, to make something common that was once holy, is to defile it, or to make it unclean or impure. Now, there's another distinction, and that is the distinction between clean or unclean. And you see that in, uh, in the area of common, things can be clean or they can be unclean. There are some things that can never, ever be clean in this, in, in this scheme. Pigs, for instance, can never be clean. Okay. You, would ne- you could never even clean a pig in preparation for making him holy. Just just isn't going to work. But there are some things that are inherently neutral, common, which can be made clean. But if something that's clean comes into contact with something that's unclean, guess what happens? The uncleanness gets transmitted. Okay? We're thinking theologically here now. Okay? So if, if I'm unclean and I touch this podium that's clean, it's unclean now. And we have to go through the process of making it clean again. You with me so far? Okay. That's how that works. Okay, so the only way to get to holy is through the window of clean. In other words, something has to be clean in order to be made holy. If you bring the holy in contact with the unclean, that's blasphemy. Defilement is going from holy to common. Now, why am I bringing this up? Well, the priests you look at the context of Leviticus 10.10 and you discover verse 9. It says, when you come into the tent of meeting. So the clean-unclean distinction is a ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. You tracking with me here? Does that make sense? It's, a, it's just a technicality, if you will. I, I don't mean to be flippant about it. It's, it's not just a technicality, but you see what I mean. It sounded like the, uh, the microphone just went out. Uh, <clears throat> when you come to the tent of meeting as a priest, not just an ordinary person, but a priest, comes to the tent of meeting, he has to be clean. And the things that he brings has to be, have to be clean. They have to be holy. And thus, this was a, a way of God saying, worship of me by my people is a very important thing. It's so important that it can't just be ordinary. That's why I have a special group of people doing this. This is why I have a special set of regulations surrounding the the tabernacle, the tent that they carried around, and then later the temple. Now, the problem is that the Pharisees did not take this into account when they said everyone in Israel needs to be like the priests. And so this is why we have to wash our hands because you could be out in the marketplace and your hands could get dirty. And then what you're you're putting your hands on, your food could become ritually unclean. And if you eat it, then you become ritually unclean. And that's a bad thing. Because we always want to appear ritually clean so that people will honor us as being spiritual giants, but we really aren't. 
don't feel we really wish people would think we are, that sort of thing. Now, they've lost sight of the fact that the clean-unclean distinction really is for the priest. So they're assuming, verse 5, that Jesus and his disciples are doing something wrong. Now, they took this really seriously. I, I just want to read you a couple of texts from the, uh, <coughs> uh, from the rabbinic period. These are, these are later than the New Testament, but they reflect an earlier tradition and probably something that these Pharisees were thinking. Uh, the Mishnah Ediyot, chapter 5, says, But whom did they excommunicate? Well, it was Eliezer ben Hanoch, who cast doubt on the sage's ruling about the cleanness of hands. Wow. It's not just you didn't wash your hands, it's you cast doubt on the ruling about clean hands. They'll excommunicate you. How about this one? And now, this one, th this one should be put up in all those places where they say employees must wash their hands before returning to work. Okay, because uh, <coughs> Rabbi Zerika said that Rabbi Eliezer said, Whoever neglects the matter of washing the hands will be uprooted from the world. Um, they took this seriously. Okay, so, so it isn't just a, you know, like, well, you know, maybe we'll try to do better. It's, they are, uh, they mean business. Of course, they mean business in the wrong direction. That's the, that's the problem. They're, they're losing sight of what's really important. Uh, now, let me emphasize, though, that that it, we're not talking about sanitation here. Now, there's an interesting connection between the two. I mean, because you and I think about sanitation. We think about our hands getting dirty. We think about handling something that's contaminated or possibly contaminated. I mean, you, you never take out the garbage and then come back in and start eating right away, right? At least you shouldn't. Okay. And there's always that person in your family who says, did you wash your hands? Okay. So thank God for them. Okay. But, you know, all right. So, the, so for us, that connects in the modern world because that's kind of for us like what ritual uncleanness would be. You don't come to the temple ritually unclean. So it's a huge issue for them, huge issue as to what you eat, and whether that food has been contaminated that is ritually unclean. So we've talked about the symptoms here. Let's get to the root of the matter. And what I said earlier was the heart is the heart of the matter, and this is where Jesus takes it. The root of hypocrisy stands in the arrogance of the human heart. Really, it's you and me trying to look better in front of other people. So we set up false standards. We try to make people think that we are more spiritual than we are, that we're greater than we are. And you think, well, this doesn't happen outside the religious world. Yes, it does. You know, people always trying to make their car look more expensive than it is, their clothes look more expensive than they really are, and so on. You know, I'm not afraid to buy discount clothes you know, as, long as, they, as long as they hold up. I'm fine. But now, let's, let's go to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart. Jesus, in his explanation of what true defilement is, is a moral de defilement. Now, catch this distinction. They're worried about ritual defilement. Jesus is worried about real defilement, moral defilement. Because in verses 20 to 23, he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Well, that's a comprehensive list. Okay? They hit you somewhere in this list. Okay? May not have been the thefts and the murders. Okay? But you got hit somewhere in this list, especially evil thoughts. This is like planning how you're going to do your next wicked thing, and everyone does that. Okay? I'm not saying it's right. You know, normal doesn't mean right, right. But, I mean, your tendency is to plan your next evil, whatever that is. Jesus says, that's what defiles you. 
not whether your hands are clean or not in the Pharisaic sense. Jesus understands that defilement cannot be viewed only in terms of religious ceremony. It has to do with the actions, uh, moral actions of free people. So there's no victimless crimes. You see how these are crimes against people, but they're crimes against God. That's really what defiles you. And he said to them, verses 6 through 8, Now, here's the, here's the root of the hypocrisy. Verse, if you go back to verses 6 through 8, Jesus says this, and he's quoting from Isaiah 29, verse 13. He says, He said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, that must have stung, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now, tradition's good if it's in line with the command of God, but when they're in conflict, wow, you're, you're in trouble. Now, notice this contrast between the lips and the heart. Isn't it just, just great how Jesus does these kinds of things? He always turns people's arguments back on themselves. Oh, if you want to talk about what goes in the mouth, let's talk about the lips. Hey, I can hear what's coming out of your mouth. You're saying you worship God. You're saying you're spiritual. You're saying you have a relationship to God. But God says, I know your heart. It's far from me. And this is, you know, endemic to Israel's history. I mean, when did they not do this? Let's see, was it in the Exodus? Yeah, they, they came out of Egypt. They didn't complain a bit. They went there on this 10-day trip. Went right into Canaan. And No, they were in there 40 years complaining. You know, once they got a king, what happened? Uh, David had his moments. Uh, but after David, what, there's Solomon? And then, look at the list of kings. You're in trouble again and again and again and again. I could multiply examples. But the contrast here is between the commandment of God and the tradition of men. He was also saying to them in verses 9 through 10, You nicely set aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Set aside the commandment of God to keep, to keep your tradition. Okay, shouldn't it work the other way around? It's like, oh, let's see, this tradition just doesn't comport with the Word of God. Let's set aside the tradition. Let's change the tradition. No, let's set aside the command. That's what they're saying, in effect. It says, for Moses said, look at that, not the elders, Moses said, honor your father and mother. Okay, that's in the Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's, that's the, that's the top of the list, right? What are the most important commandments? You know, love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself is, is what you Christians would say, right? But most in Jesus' day would say, well, there's the Ten Commandments. Okay, look what he does. He says, look how seriously God takes this commandment. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. So Jesus is saying, you know how seriously God takes this command? Honor your father and mother? Hey, kids, listen. <laughs> Watch out. Uh, there's, a, there's a procedure for this, and you can take your kid in front of the court and say, this guy's a rebel. He's, I, I've tried. It just isn't working. And the community says, okay, we'll stone him to death. Okay. He who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. The punishment fits the crime. But you say, Moses said this. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, anything of mine which may be, which uh, you might have been helped by is korban. Mark explains that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Now, this is a this is a very cryptic statement, and, and it starts off with the first part of whatever it is that the rabbis would have said. Now, let me explain this korban real quickly. It's it's uh, it's complex. Let's see. There's no time. Let me sum up. 
Buttercup is Mary Humperdinck in Little Less Than Half an Hour. So um, let's get going. No, okay. Let's let's try to explain. You didn't recognize the Princess Bride reference. Okay, well you. Okay. I'm not going to go into that. So. Princess Bride required viewing. Okay, you just got to watch it. It's a it's a silly, campy kind of movie, but there's some great lines. Okay, Corban. Now, given to God is how Mark explains this. So here's kind of how this works. But somebody would say Corban just means offering. But it took on a technical meaning in Jesus' day. What someone would say is, this field, let's just say, for instance, this field or this money or whatever it is, someone would say, this is korban, okay, given to God. And we read that and we go, oh, that sounds nice. You know, like it's been given to the temple, right? No. What this really does is just, it doesn't actually assign ownership of that property or whatever it is, that money or property. It doesn't assign ownership of that field or that money or those the, the, that livestock to the temple. It's not actually given, but it's taken out of circulation when someone says korban. And this is the way the oath works. Somebody makes an oath, they say korban over this particular item or to this particular person. And this isn't, this isn't good most of the time. Some of the times you read in the rabbinic literature of people saying this to their parents, you are korban to me. In other words, they're cutting off their relationship from the person they're talking to when they say this word korban. It's not, um, what do they call this? It's not a living trust. It's not uh, a situation where ownership uh, goes to the temple when the person dies. That is not how it works. It's just that I've taken it out of circulation. It can no longer be used. It's holy. You can't use it, Dad. You see the loophole? Okay. That was the title of uh, Andy Stanley's uh, message, is loophole. Is how do they figure out how not to do what the book really says and say that they're really doing it? Okay. That's hypocrisy. And so, uh, if there's a dispute, the dispute comes before the rabbinic council, so to speak, the elders, and they make a ruling. They say, well, the guy said Korban over this. You've got to keep your vow. Numbers 30 says that. You see what they've done? Is they've taken one commandment of God and they've set it over against another as though one were more important. As though keeping your vow was more important than doing actually what God wants you to do. Okay? There's all kinds of scenarios in the rabbinic literature as well where the korban thing backfires on somebody. Okay. This field's korban. Oh, but I'd like to hold a wedding here, so I've got to give this to somebody else. And it, uh, it's crazy. Um, if you'd like, we can wade through the Mishnah together. It is, uh, it, it is really hard to untangle this. And, and rightly so. There's all these technicalities. There are, there's all these loopholes by which the Pharisees are saying, eh, you don't really understand. And Jesus is saying, wait a minute. What you've actually done in this practice is You've actually made it so that someone is prohibited from doing the commandment of God so they can keep your tradition. He says, you no longer permit him, verse 12 says, to do anything for his father and mother. Now, now Jesus doesn't have to say it, but as though he's saying, in my book, that's dishonoring your father or mother. So that means you're worthy of death. I mean, even just cursing your father or mother capital offense. Thus, you invalidate the Word of God. Thus, invalidating the Word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. It's like, don't make me go into other examples, because they're too numerous. We'd be here all day. Okay? And I don't want to spend all day with you guys. I'd rather be with my disciples. Okay? 
So what's the treatment for hypocrisy? Okay. I wish I could say, take this pill. You know? Take this pill and you'll no longer be a hypocrite. But then they'd say, do not take this pill if you're allergic to this pill. If you develop any of these symptoms, call your doctor immediately. Or I like the ones where they say, side effects could include death. If you develop any of these side effects, stop taking this medicine and call your doctor immediately. I'm always laughing when they say that. Well, this asthma medicine is supposed to help my asthma, but it could increase the risk of my dying from asthma. What am I supposed to do? Um, go talk to the rabbis. They've got it figured out. Um, no, God's perspective is what we need. And that's verses uh, 14 to 19. Now, look at this. It says, after he called the multitude to him again. Now, this is a pattern in Jesus' teaching. He does, he, he does something public. He'll say something, and then he'll explain it privately. So uh, chapter 4 does this, too. Chapter 4, he's by the sea, and then chapter 4, verse 10. Chapter 4, verse 1, he's by the sea. Chapter 4, verse 10, he's with his disciples. This is exactly what he's going to do again. It says, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a man which going into him can defile him, but the things which proceed out of the man are what defile him. Okay, now, we get the explanation in 20 to 23 about how someone acts. That's what really defiles them. And then he explains this to his disciples in verse 17. When leaving the multitude, he entered the house. His disciples questioned him about the parables. He's like, wait, wait a minute, was there a parable here? I like, I never saw the, there was this guy who went to Jericho and, you know, and so on. But you and I don't think of parable in the same way they do. Parable just means comparison. So lots of Jesus' parables are stories. This one is just kind of a figure of speech. And so he's been deliberately vague, like he is in the parables, so the so people on the inside can understand it. He said to them, "Are you so lacking in understanding? Also, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They're the disciples, right? Shouldn't they be understanding? What, doesn't this tell you something? Doesn't it tell you that hypocrisy isn't just for the Pharisees? My problem too. Okay. This is why one wag said." That's why in Mark they're called the disciples. <laughs> That's so funny. I just keep thinking of that. The disciples. Yeah. Okay, that only works in English, but anyway. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Here's why. Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Okay? It's not a food problem, it's a heart problem, and the heart problem isn't clogged arteries. Okay? So you really do need to watch what you eat, but for different reasons, okay? But not for parasitic reasons. The real definition of, define, of defilement, then, is understood in terms of what people do in their everyday behavior, not whether they followed some religious ceremony. Now, I just have to pause here. And he's eliminated. This is one of these situations where translators get a little uncomfortable. You know, the food goes not into your heart, but into your stomach, and it's, it literally says, and out into the latrine. And they went, did it say latrine? Um, no, I think not. Let's just say eliminated. But if you think about what Paul says in, in Philippians 3.8, he talks about all the things he used to do as a Pharisee, all this, you know, like upstanding Pharisee, keep the law, uh, keep the traditions of the elders more than the law. And he says, I have suffered the loss of all things for Jesus Christ my Lord, and count them but rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. That's another one of those things where the translator is just kind of holding their hands on their mouths and saying, can you really say what it really says here? Um, it's a four-letter word. Okay. Let me just put it this way. Four-letter word, it's not garbage. Okay. Uh, you see what? You know what? It's really interesting that the very best that people, human flesh, can produce, even under the best conditions, is nothing but a big pile of 
just do whatever four-letter word you want there. And you got it. And it has the same shock value in Philippians 3 as it does now. Okay, Paul actually calls his accomplishments as a Pharisee a pile of hoop. Four-letter word. Hoop. Okay, so Jesus says it's not a food problem, it's a heart problem. And then what, what happens here is, this is a showstopper right here. Now, you don't recognize this yet, but in the next time I teach you on Mark 7, I, I'm going to unpack this. But this is a shocking statement. He says, thus he declared all foods clean. You mean I can eat ham? And I can eat shrimp? What? You see, if it doesn't have fins and scales, something that doesn't have fins and scales, or if it doesn't have a cloven hoof and chew the cud, you can't eat it. At least in kosher ways. But do you see what he's done? He's actually turned the, the discussion away from washing hands to the food issue altogether. And this has enormous implications for how we treat people. Because those guys over there eat different foods than we do. See the trouble? And this is a live issue. All you got to do is read Acts 10, Acts 15, Romans 14, 15, Galatians 2. I'm, I can keep going. It's a live issue in the early church. I'm going to explain that the next time I, I get up here for Mark. How's that? But you see something else here. This is the shocking piece right here. Jesus just waved his hand and did away with those purity requirements. Who gets to do that? <laughs> Only God can do that. God's the one who put them in place. Only God's the one who can, who can do it. And if he can declare all foods clean, he can make you clean from defilement as well. And that's why, that's why we turn to him. So here's some antidotes to hypocrisy. First of all, you have to admit that you're in need of cleansing. Okay? Defilement, great. That's a great issue to be worried about. The Pharisees are worried about it. They're worried about it in the wrong ways. But I dare say most of us, if we lived in Jesus' time, we would have been Pharisees. I know you don't think so, but you would have been. Okay? Because you need to admit that you're in need of cleansing. And when you look to Jesus, you see him as the fulfillment of this whole sacrificial system that the purity laws were designed to, to protect the integrity of. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. That's what gives him the authority to say, ah, it's done. The temple's here. The Lamb of God is here. Your sacrifice is here. We don't need those requirements now because every believer is a temple. And the third thing I should say is stop faking it. Really. I mean, this is like Bob Newhart doesn't drink counsel. Here's your problem. Get over it. Uh, but really, stop faking it. Resist any attempt to build a system of honor or prestige or to make yourself look good because of what you do or don't do. Just live your life in front of God and recognize that you need His cleansing power every minute of the day. There's not a time when, when His mercy is not absolutely needed really think about it, Jesus came to save us from God, from God's wrath. I mean, God's just wrath. Every moment of our existence, we need cleansing. 1 John 1, 8, 1, 7, 1, 8, 1, 9, talks about the blood of Jesus continuing to cleanse us from all sin. So admit you're in need of cleansing. Look to Jesus as the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. And stop faking it. Admit when you're wrong. Admit when you've blown it. Don't make someone else live up to your standards of, of anything, really. Of music, of carpets, of uh, the way you dress. I mean, what, these guys who don't wear a tie to church? Anything that you can use to make an us and them, stop it. Jesus says, stop it. So, a pure heart then leads to clean hands. 
if Jesus has cleansed you of your sin, then your hands, what your hands do, can be clean because he's the one who decides what's clean. Align yourself with God's will by recognizing his standards for the evaluation of life. So let me leave you with this. If you clean your hands only, your heart will remain defiled. But if you clean your heart, your hands will be clean. Clean the hands alone, heart's still defiled. If you clean your heart, the hands are clean. But wash your hands before you eat lunch. Let's close in prayer. What a fantastic truth that uh, Jeremiah gave us in his lamentations. It is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And Father, we, uh, we pause to let that sink in that nothing we do can make you love us more than you already do, and that you are merciful and gracious to give cleansing where it is needed, and to give direction where it is needed, so that what you do through us is what you consider to be right and good. Father, help us to adopt your standards for the way we think about ourselves and about each other. Seek to see your will done in our lives from one day to the next as you give it one mercy at a time. And I thank you for all of this in Jesus' name.